this Wednesday, our family is actually going to be at Oak Avenue. I'll be preaching there for their summer series, and so we'll need someone to take Mr. Harvey. Now, we'll take care of that, though. Um, but hopefully, y'all have a wonderful summer series Wednesday evening service. And um, nice surprise. We have Christina George with us. She's one of the counselors. I know she wasn't in- intending this, but she is one of our counselors at Camp Cope. And uh, she has come to worship with us this morning. Christine, I'm glad you are here to be with us. <laughs> she seemed a little shy. <laughs> All right. So, you know, this passage of Scripture that was just read for us in the Scripture reading, typically we will read John 3, verse 16, maybe verse 17, but that's typically the end, and we forget the rest. Garland just read for us a passage of Scripture that is not easy For all to swallow. And it's very important that we understand what's being said, particularly as our desire is to share the gospel with our neighbors. Right? And and when we share things with them, there are things that are difficult sometimes from our vantage point in giving the message of what is otherwise regarded as good news. So when we think good news, we think chapter 3, verse 16, great news, right? God so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. Well, read one more time this text and see if, if it sounds all roses when we read it again. Verse 17, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. So wonderful good news And it is, in fact, such. He goes on to say this. He who believes in him is not condemned. On the other hand, he who does not believe in Jesus, in him, is condemned already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than light, because their deeds were evil. That's hard to swallow. Everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light unless his deeds should be exposed. And he goes back and gets things a little bit easier to understand and to accept. And he finishes on a positive note, if you will. Jesus says to Nicodemus, he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Over the years, just like last week when we looked at the whole concept of second baptism, questions that that I've been asked and many of you have been asked. In fact, a number of you were saying, I get asked that from time to time as a child of God about, you know, should I be baptized again and and looking at all the nuances of what that was. There's another question that's more generic but very, very, well, it's a powerful question. It's very loaded And some will ask it out of actual, genuine desire to know the truth. And then there are those that ask it out of derision, that they want to defame Christianity. It's basically the question like this. 
Is Jesus the only way a person is saved? Or some similar statement along the lines is Christianity exclusive to all other religions? In other words, is the Christian religion the only one that counts? And there's a lot in that statement when asked that question, right? I mean, if you've ever, in fact, just real quick poll, anyone ever been asked that question? Is Jesus the only way to salvation or something similar to it? That's almost, that's at least a third for sure that raised your hand. And, and think about this. When, when they ask similar questions, when it's out of derision, it's like you think you're the only ones that are going to be saved. And it's interesting because we're talking about two things. Number one, that there is an idea of salvation, which is an amazing concept all by itself. You know, you live life and you go through life. And, and prior to me hearing God's word, I never thought of salvation. I thought about heaven, but never thought of salvation. My thought before I was a Christian was, when you die, you go to heaven. As long as you don't murder anybody, you're good. Right? But I never thought about Jesus as a means of salvation, as if I needed saving. And so... That's a big step right there when we're talking about salvation. But then when you add to it, is Christianity the only way? You know, what about the Buddhist, the Hindu, the Muslim? What about people of, of different kinds of quote-unquote religions? Remember, we looked at that two weeks ago about the whole word religion. So when we're looking at a question like this, is Jesus the only way a person is saved? There's, surprisingly, different answers. Now, because we love God, we love his word, we've just read this passage of scripture, he who believes in him is not condemned, and the one who does not believe in him, that person is already condemned. And then he goes on to even explicitly say, here's why. Because they do evil, and they don't want the truth. And that's a paraphrased reason from what is explicitly stated here that they practice and hate the light. Practice evil and hating the light. And so they don't want to see the light. So when we're asked this question, how do we answer it? Because our desire as Christians is to share good news, right? But when we're talking about sharing good news, sin is attached to the whole conversation. And that's where we have to come in and look at the scriptures and see what it teaches. And that's where we have and why we have Bible studies here, let alone at home. Whether it be personal, uh, family, maybe community. Whatever the Bible studies you are engaged in, it's for the intent of us getting to know the one who is declaring to us that we are sinners and we need salvation. Right? So it's, it's not difficult as far as the intention of why we have what we call the Bible. What is difficult is when we start getting to all these nuances and we start fighting and debating over those nuances. And all of a sudden, we go from trying to share God's word, trying to reach the lost, to fighting over individual words and what they mean. And then going back, well, let's get my lexicon out. Well, you got a lexicon. I got a bigger lexicon than you. You know, that kind of thing. And then we start quibbling over these things. But here's the thing. Our desire, think about it. If we reflect the way Jesus handled truth, 
is to reach souls that are precious to God. God made every single soul. Every bit as precious as yours and mine. And so it's not just that we're sharing them God's word. It needs to be coupled with an absolute genuine care for that person that we're talking to. And not from some outside person's point of view looking at you and looking at me in that we've won. We, oh, yeah, you, you really hit those arguments really well. It doesn't matter if we win a quote-unquote debate about the subject matter of saving a soul. I mean, it's important that we have truth, absolutely. How many of us have always have been condemned at some point of preaching the truth was a sledgehammer? I have. Out of my zeal, I would say out of love that I have. But a sledgehammer nonetheless. And there's a time and place for sledgehammers. Don't get me wrong. But when you have people that are sincerely asking, be careful with with the tools that you have of salvation because their soul is precious to God. So again, how are you going to answer this question? When someone asks you that question, don't just refer them to me. Don't just refer them to one of the elders. Don't just refer them. Be prepared for that moment. This morning, as Steve was mentioning, you know, when someone asks you for the hope that lies within you, 1 Peter chapter 3, right? That we actually have been studying and preparing for the very convictions that we state that we have about Jesus. So be prepared. Here's how I look at this subject matter. And this is what's important when, we, when we're looking at the subject of sin and salvation. All right? So typically what we do is if we're going to talk to others about the need for a Savior, and that Savior is found in and only through Jesus Christ, and we're going to see why in a little bit, is to kind of get the whole setting, the whole backdrop. All right? And so when we look at why we have this Bible, it gives us this big picture of why Jesus is the Son of God who came into this world, died for our sins, that those who believe on him would not perish not be condemned, that they would have everlasting life. Now, in John chapter 1, I want you to go there, and in fact, that sets the tone for this whole epistle, right? What we call the Gospel of John. It says in verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God. He continues on saying, He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. So very clearly, what John does, he himself starts at the very beginning of creation. Where whatever this word is, he's with God. And whatever this word is, scripture says right here, he is God. In fact, Scripture then says all things were made through him, through this word that was with God, that is God. And Scripture also said in verse 4, in him, in this word, was life. And the life was the light of men. And for all the nuance of what that means, the big takeaway is this light that comes from him 
shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. If you are a Jew listening to this, you cannot help but go back to the very beginning when God created man and sets things in motion as to a relationship between him and mankind. And that's what you see in Genesis chapter 2. And then in Genesis chapter 3, you get the very picture that, that God, after telling man not to partake of that particular tree of the knowledge of good and evil, does so, and we see those consequences. And darkness enters the land, so to speak, metaphorically speaking. That's what John is going back to. And then John fast-forwards all the way to the Messiah that the Jews were hoping for and expecting, right? And that's what he says right here as he jumps right into who this Jesus is. So, in a nutshell, what we're looking at then is this concept that in the beginning, God creates and everything is good. In fact, by the time you get to the end of chapter 1, it's very good. And we see this relationship between God and man in Genesis chapter 2. And while it is a very quick reading on our end, right, creation, and all of a sudden he makes man. Man is um, naming animals as, as commanded by God and then tending and keeping the garden. We never stop and digest and let know. We don't know how long that lasted for. But when you read it, it almost sounds like the next day he sins. I don't know about you. That's how I read it at least. But there's this relationship going on of life. And it's not until you get to Genesis 3, whenever that takes place, however short or long, I'd like to hope it was long. But at some point, man could not keep that one and only prohibition law, if you will, commandment. Just one. And it wasn't some kind of real, real big doozy. It was... There's this tree in the midst of all the other trees right there in the middle. It's like telling Allie, don't eat the brownies. Oh, it's right there, Dad. Especially when you're not looking. And for whatever the reason, man goes and partakes of the fruit. He transgresses the very desire that God had for him. Because God wants you and I to lean on him, to be with him. And so here it is. He goes his own way, and we see sin. And the question is, do people believe in Jesus as his son, as, or we're talking about his personal claims when, when the Scripture tells us that this Jesus is the one who came into the world? He is the one that we needed because, I mean, if I were to just do a little parenthetical, and this parenthetical is like over two-thirds of what we call the Bible, this parenthetical is after man sins, we fast forward to, yeah, man really sins, right? Chapter 4. And he's so bad, chapter 5 and chapter 6, that God destroys the whole world. Because man's thoughts are only evil continuously. And if that's not enough, when we start this whole new beginning, if you will, in Genesis chapter 9... We fast forward to a man named Abraham, and then we fast forward to a nation named Israel. And with it were all these laws. And the laws were set around the priesthood of Aaron so that man could have fellowship, as though he's a sinner, with a holy God. And after all the commandment was made, everyone agrees within the nation of Israel to, uh, to walk with this God 
that he would be their God, they would be his people. They all made this agreement called a covenant. Everyone's saying, yes, we will walk with you. We will keep your commandments, and they don't. And that's the history of men, never keeping this relationship that God had desired for him because his thoughts are evil. Even righteous individuals sin. Lots and lots of scriptures. And so that's what I'm saying. Two-thirds of the scriptures right here on that one point. Israel, no matter how many times God forgave them, no matter how many times they had all these sacrificial means, even when they were keeping the law, they weren't even doing it out of a desire to walk with God. That's why they go on into captivity. And then we see finally this need, this need where man cannot do it on his own. So God says, I'm going to send you a savior. That's the picture we get. In fact, that's part of the reason why we have like these letters called Romans and Hebrews. Man's not able to do it. The good news is, I'm going to send my son. And I want you to believe in him as the one I send as savior of this world. He will save you from this separation between you and me. All right. So that's the, the big, big picture. But here's where things get, get really dicey for many individuals. When Jesus comes on the scene, Jesus does not come on and say simply like, you know, I'm one of the ways that you get to God. Right? If you were to go into uh, and read through a number of other quote-unquote holy books... They won't make this kind of claim. Jesus is brash and says, I am the only way. Right? John chapter 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except or but through me. And unless you believe that I am he, the one that my Father has sent into this world, the one who is going to suffer in your place, because of your sins, unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins, is what Jesus says. Very explicitly and very exclusively. In fact, on a number of other passages that we can get to, Jesus says, Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent me. And everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me because of these other statements that he says. So very, very exclusive of what Jesus is trying to get at, these claims. Now think about it. I, the Vedic scriptures are, I mean, that makes this book look tiny, right? So if you are going to uh, get into any other of those readings of scriptures, and I remember studying with a young man about those Vedic scriptures, there's no claim of salvation. In fact, the Vedic scriptures will even say, yeah, Jesus could be one of them. I mean, it doesn't say that explicitly, but it, it's open to other religions. So it sounds very inclusive and it's attractive. Or you got the nice teachings of Buddha, right? In fact, I, until after my grandfather passed away, did not know he was a Buddha. I did not know my grandfather was Buddhist. My mom says, here, grandpa wanted you to have this book. And you read. And so you, you're going, okay, neat guy. Jesus 
separates himself, not from an intentional vantage point, but it's because of who he is. He is the son of God, and he is the most holy of holies, right? And so he's already separated from all of God's creation in that he says, I am God, and I've come to save you. Believe on me, and believe in the Father who sent me. And so we're talking about something that is very controversial. But the controversy doesn't end with Jesus because there are people who are willing to give their lives to the death to make the very same claims of the one they follow, Jesus. And that's why you have at the very beginning when Peter is preaching the gospel in Acts chapter 2 and going on through the scriptures, he says similar statements, if not explicitly like this in Acts chapter 4 when he is before the council and says, neither is there salvation in any other Think about it. It's exclusive to this name, Jesus, whom you crucified. Right? There is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Now, think about the ramifications to what's being said. You're not just opening up something called the Bible because they didn't have it like the way we do today. You're talking about a statement that someone has made and you are so convicted in this individual as in fact the Messiah, the Christ in other words, that you're willing to take his words and repeat them to other individuals, other individuals who put him to death, the Messiah. Think about the ramifications. You will lose your job. You may lose your family. You may lose your close friends, and you may lose your life. And if that's not scary enough for some of you, imagine if you're willing to lose your life, would you be willing to let your spouse and your children and your parents and your siblings and your closest friends die because of your belief? That's what these individuals were taking to their own graves, believing that Jesus is not just a savior, but the one and only Savior. And so it's real heavy, right? The subject matter of what we're talking about. Very, very, it's life and death important. And so when we're coming to church and we're having these church services today and we're believing in Jesus, it's not just that we believe in him. It is a conviction that matters with regard to our souls. It's a life or death conviction. Paul, in very similar fashion, the very man who, well, he had individuals put into jail and others, he consented until their death. He himself becomes a follower of Jesus. And Paul says to Timothy, and he wants Timothy to say this to all other men. In fact, that's why 1 Timothy chapter 2, the things that I te tell you, teach it to others that they may teach, or that, you know, that these faithful men may teach to others. He says, here's what I want you to know and I want you to teach. That there is one God and one mediator between God and men. Man is Christ Jesus. The words are simple for us to understand from an academic standpoint, but the ramifications are huge. 
It's so huge, it's not enough for us to simply be here in this building and, and, and quote-unquote warm pews. It should be such a conviction that we're willing to share it with our neighbors, our family members, right? Who Jesus is. And mind you, there are many people in our country because we've got, well, we've got quote-unquote churches for all what's being taught in truth and in error in many pulpits around the world in the name of Christianity. There are many that will say at least, yeah, I know who Jesus is. And then you'll come across individuals who may not in this country, and it's getting more and more so today than ever. Some of you live in bubbles. What I mean by that is, in your, in your mind, from a practical standpoint, everybody knows who Jesus is, right? But in our country, there are more and more growing up that never know who he is other than hearing the name. And just like God, the name of Jesus would be blasphemed. But that's as far as the name goes. To actually know who he is, more and more growing up in our nation without that knowledge. And it won't be so strange if in a generation from now, we are the fertile grounds for mission work where people come to share the gospel. What kind of conviction will you have if you don't have it now? We have today in other parts of this world, men and women and children whose lives are being taken because they believe in this name, Jesus. And we're very comfortable in this room. We don't have these threats that affect us in the same magnitude as taking place in other parts of the world. But we've support men, right? I mean, we have a brother in Christ who has a bulletproof vest now, right? <laughs> in Africa. We have brethren that are sharing the gospel in, in other regions that are very dangerous where they get robbed for, for going about sharing God's word. And they still do it because they have this conviction. And it's not just a conviction in who he is. It's a conviction because of what he has done for us. And see, what, what Jesus was doing with Nicodemus is no different than what we're sharing today. Is we, we have this good news, and it is, in fact, great, great news. It, there's no better news than Jesus who died on the cross for our sins. But the reality is, there are many that aren't accepting this proclamation. So how do we handle that? Just personal conviction of mine as I see it through Scripture. I believe that while we are convinced that God's word is true, that Jesus' claims are true, otherwise you wouldn't be here this morning. Otherwise, I would not be preaching. I'd feel like a liar and a hypocrite if I didn't believe this. But that doesn't mean everyone's going to accept it, including sometimes individuals that come into the room. And for those of us that go into the jail in Davidson County, we get to see sometimes individuals that want to just get out of their cell, want out for no other reason than just to breathe 
a little bit more so they'll come into a worship service that we might be having or a Bible study that we might be having on a Friday or on a Sunday. But they don't believe. So how do you handle that? Here's how you handle it. In Acts chapter 9, I want you to read the first couple of verses with me. Because there's a statement here that I think is applicable. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked letters from him to the synagogues of Damascus so that he so that if he found any who were of the way, whether men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Think about it. From the flip side of this. If you are on the flip side of this, you are of the way, and the apostle is coming for you. He's going to bring papers with authority behind those papers to bound you or to bind you. And take you off and imprison you because you believe that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. How would you treat him along the way? We read of individuals that are scared of him. You don't read of anyone saying, you know, when he comes, we're going to cut him down. In the name of protecting ourselves. I mean, I, I'm getting to some, some muddy waters, I understand when I say that. But that's first century reaction right here. They're not doing anything other than simply going about and giving the hope that lies within them because of the convictions that they have that Jesus is the Christ. They respond by the way they were taught to respond. Not just that they share God's word, but how they shared God's word. Not just that they live their lives, but how they live their lives in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So if I'm going to share the gospel with my mom and my dad and my brothers and my sisters, my relatives, my friends, my neighbors, my co-workers. But I live my life no different than the people of this world. What effect does it have on them? When I, in fact, I open my mouth on one given day to share the gospel message. That's why the previous sermons that deal with hypocrisy on the name, on the part of a Christian, are so damaging to the cause of Christ. Where with our lips we're saying to the world, yes, I believe that Jesus is the Christ, but I don't live for him. I live for my selfish gain. I live for just me, me, me about whatever it is. But I still believe in Jesus. You're not going to be effective. The reputation that you have as a child of God precedes you by what you do every single day. Unfortunately, for many Christians that have the mindset of just coming to a building is protecting your name at all costs among just reputation, but never really living for him. Just living for yourself. These individuals, they were living for Jesus, even unto the death. That's why you can read passages like in 2 Corinthians when Paul is saying, you know, here's what, if we're going to 
get boastful and talk about fleshly things. Here's what my life looks like for Christ. Being shipwrecked. Being left for dead. Being stoned. Being imprisoned. Being whipped. And so if we have these kind of convictions, we need to point individuals to Jesus by what we say and how we say it, by what we do and how we do it. Because we want souls with genuine conviction that we have on our end to see the light that Steve was talking about, right? Being lights on a hill, being salt of the earth. That's how we live every day. Do people know that you are children of God? Do they know it? And I'm not just talking about Facebook status either. I'm talking about just when, they, when you're out in the community, do they actually see someone who over time, as they get to know you, this person genuinely lives for Jesus? Your words have a lot more power behind them when that happens. That's how you point the way to Jesus, the Jesus way, if you will. So think about these things because, again, the desire that we should have is to be evangelistic always. And not necessarily from a program standpoint that we've got this, hey, we're all going to gather together on this given day and we're going to knock on doors and pass out flyers. And It's just living your life. With such great conviction that everyone sees that conviction. No program needed. Just a genuine walk with Jesus. If that's not the way you're living your life, think again why you're here on Sunday mornings or on Wednesday nights. Whether you're going through motions or you're living with intentionality. You're living with a conviction that moves you, compels you. To walk with a Savior that you believe Him to be. And wanting others to truly have this good news. Knowing that tied with the good news is that salvation aspect because of sin. We have to be willing to share that. Are you willing? Maybe you're here visiting with us this morning and maybe you've not been walking with Jesus. Maybe, you, maybe you've not even heard His name before. And as shocking as it may sound for some of us in this room, if it can happen to me, because that's exactly what happened to me, I did not know who Jesus was until the day I became a Christian. It, it can happen to any time that we are here, and as Steve pointed out, someone walks into our door, and we may not know their background. So we're not going to be presumptuous. But we can share with them the simple, fundamental good news that Jesus is the Christ. He died, and he rose again. And just as Jesus wants us to do with this great commission, we want others to die with him in the likeness of his death, in the likeness being in baptism, that in the likeness of that resurrection, we can rise up to walk in newness of life. And so we adjure you, if you're here and you haven't done that, to do so, to have a relationship of the salvation that is offered to you freely as a gift. And if you choose not to accept Salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. We'll still love you. Brethren, I hope you agree with what I've just said. 
if we have neighbors here that don't accept Jesus as the Christ. I believe, neighbor, you will be lost in your sins, not because you're unloved, but because you reject. You don't believe in the one who is claimed to have died for you, but will still love you, and not with hypocritical love, with a genuine love for your soul. That's your invitation. I hope you'll accept it. I hope you'll come now as together we stand and sing the song.